When you're scrolling through social media, it's easy to see the picturesque versions of people's lives. Glamour shots at the beach, promotions at work, all the party selfies. This kind of stuff can leave you feeling less than perfect. So you tell yourself that you're going to do all the things. You're going to have that career that makes it rain, that fairy tale romantic relationship, and some other cute random hobby just because you happen to be a genius at that too. You are chasing perfectionism, but this usually doesn't work out very well. You get sick, life gets in the way, and before you know it, years have gone by and that ideal perfect life that you had in mind is like a balloon that you lost grip of that has just drifted up into the sky. I'm Clint Malley and this is Real Common Treatable where we talk about overcoming mental health, addiction, and substance use challenges in simple, everyday language. So, we need a magical guide for our perfectionism journey today. My name is Sarah Buino, and I'm the president and founder of Head Heart Therapy, which is a private practice in Chicago. We specialize in addiction, shame, and substance use disorders. For Sarah, in trying to help other people in her private practice, she learned just how much negative self-talk she was inflicting on herself too, and how that feeling of needing to be perfect was subtly running in the background in her mind for a long time. I told myself when I started working in the treatment center, I'm not just going to talk about the things. I'm, I need to embody them. So I started meditating once I was doing that work because I was trying to teach people how to meditate. And so I was like, if I'm going to try to teach people about talking to ourselves more kindly, I have to be more mindful of it. And I had never really thought about how I was talking to myself before then. And, and so I was really paying attention. And, and there was a day where we had, of course, the locked closet where all of the records are kept. And I walked to that room. I had forgotten my keys. And in my head, I said, oh, you're so stupid. And I like paused and I was like, this isn't stupid. This is a mistake. But as I listened to more and more of the ways that I talked to myself, I was constantly shaming myself and constantly, you know, putting myself in this like black and white lens that either I'm all good and wonderful and great or I'm terrible and awful and a big old piece of crap. So that was a really that was a really good just moment to recognize what I'd been doing to myself probably my whole life. And I know I'm not alone. It might be worth defining what perfectionism actually is. Is there a perfect definition that we can lean on? I actually call it not good enoughism because when we say perfectionism, a lot of times people think, oh, I have to be perfect everywhere in every situation. And if you could see the other side of this room right now, you would be like, she's not a perfectionist because that doesn't look very clean. But it's not about, it's not about every, in every single place we're trying to be perfect. It's whatever measure you have for yourself or if you have adopted measures from the outside. So body image is one that I think everybody can relate to. So if we're not 5'10", long blonde hair with perfect features, then you know we're not good enough based on society standards. And many of us have internalized that, that standard. And that's just one example of how it can show up. The areas 
for myself, I tend to really beat myself up in terms of relationships with other people. And so I was just talking in therapy yesterday about my perfectionism related to how I am as a boss or how I am as a friend or how I am as a wife and my desire to never let anyone be mad at me. I always wanna make sure I've done the right thing so they can't be upset with me and I'm not a bad person then. So perfectionism is subjective. It depends on you. Whatever your idea of good enough or perfect is, that is perfectionism. And it doesn't have to be about everything. We cannot care about excelling at our job, but have perfectionism when it comes to organizing our house. Or eat unhealthy food just because, but also have it the perfect exercise routine we try to keep up with no matter what. Where do we get these standards? Where do we find these ideas of perfect? Why do we feel the need to be perfect in different areas all the time? Truthfully, I think the real answer is capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy. I think that the systems that have been built in this country, unfortunately, were designed to keep a certain amount of people wealthy and the rest of us oppressed. And I think that especially capitalism, I've just, I've been doing a lot of work. And I guess I'll say to listeners, anti-capitalism isn't about whether or not you make money, it's being in right relationship to money and making sure that you're not exploiting people. So the way that I really truly connect capitalism to the ways that we talk to ourselves is capitalism says, produce more, don't rap, push through if you're having pain. And that's not human, that's not normal. And when those are the messages that we mostly get in society, and that's, that's what I've gotten my whole life. It's only been, I think, really since COVID that I've started to see more messages that say, we have to rest, we have to take care of our bodies. We should be using our sick days, we should be using our vacation time. And these superhuman standards, this is just the way our country has functioned since its inception. And so of course, it's not only stuff that we hear every day, but our ancestors, I think, had it even worse back when we didn't have some of the conveniences that we have today. So it's really baked into our culture. And it's gonna take, truthfully, I think it's gonna take a revolution to shift that. This hustle or die capitalistic culture can create unrealistic work expectations. It can make you feel like you have to be making a certain amount of money at a certain age, or you need to have the right stuff in order to be considered a real adult. But what about that whole white supremacy thing? How does that play a role in perfectionism too? Essentially, white supremacist values, and when I say white supremacy, it's really a systemic racism thing. It's not individual. Like when we think of white supremacy, we might think of the KKK or Proud Boys or something like that. Somebody who is individually trying to harm another person. I'm more talking about the the systemic culture that's that's been created in the United States. And one one of the standards that comes right to my head is worship of the written word. That's one of the values of white supremacy and having things be in a certain order, having things, rules followed exactly as they are supposed to be, which again is, that's not human. I've been actually, I've been 
working a lot to be a better business owner and taking some courses. And I'm taking a course on productivity right now, which is great for a workaholic. And the thing that I, the thing that the course is missing, because it's telling me all the things to do, all the behavioral ways to make sure that I'm more organized, not necessarily to produce more, but to be more effective with my time. And the thing that they don't account for is emotion. Because some of the things that I have to do are very emotional work because I'm a therapist. And there's no factor in there for what do I do if this task is emotionally difficult for me today. And so a lot of the values of white supremacy also don't take into account that intuition and emotion, these things that have been considered more feminine. So here we bring in patriarchy, things that are more feminine, things that are more embedded in non-white cultures, we tend to reject them because they don't forward us in a productive way necessarily. There are even more obvious forms of white supremacy that have contributed to how we see ourselves. From skin lightening creams to sometimes dangerous hair relaxation treatments, much of our culture is entrenched in holding white as beautiful for a very long time. Intellectually, for the classics, when we consider fine art, music, and literature, it's often white or Eurocentric too. Are you less musically sophisticated if you don't know what a concerto is over a trap beat? Are you really an art connoisseur if you haven't read Dostoevsky or Chaucer? Sometimes, when we aren't open to things that stick out of the classical canon, we don't let our less traditional skills shine. For example, intuition. Intuition, I think, is a a good thing to think about. The fight that's going on inside of the mental health community right now is evidence-based practice or not evidence-based practice. I teach a class and my students only are learning CBT. And there's nothing wrong with CBT. It doesn't work for me personally as a client, so I've never understood how it could work for anybody else. Because you can't, you can't tell me to just do something different that doesn't change the way I feel. It's an evidence-based practice because it's reproducible and and it's manualized, right? So that's a white supremacy value, whereas intuition, I think of therapy as being both an art and a science. There, there are scientific facts and there are things that we need to learn, which actually we probably need to examine where some of that data comes from because most likely it's cis, hetero, heterosexual white men that were studied to get this information, right? But there are certain things that are true that we need to know but then there are things that we just feel. And the art of, I mean, anything. There's an art to being a salesperson. There's an, I'm sure there's some sort of art to being an accountant as well. It's not all just facts and figures. And when we take that part out, I think we're, I think we're missing a lot of the depth and the nuance and the texture of life that isn't necessarily moving us towards gaining wealth or, or building a business or whatever that might be. As Sarah just alluded to, and at the risk of mansplaining the process of mansplaining, much of the subjects that we have for traditional forms of research or fact don't take into account diversity. Diversity of food, of family structures, or beliefs. When we use white folks, and especially male white folks, as the bar for fact and classical thought, 
we smother the subtle nuances and beauty of life. All thriving things need diversity. Healthy ecosystems need a bunch of different types of plants and animals to thrive. Capitalism, white supremacy, and the patriarchy is the opposite of this. It's taking over a land to create one kind of crop that certain folks want to buy and to maximize the output of that land, even if it starves the land of all of its health. Am I getting too metaphorical? Okay, back to Sarah. With all these pressures of perfectionism, I had to know, how does she not burn out in the perfectionism spiral? That is a very good question. I was just talking with my sponsor about this morning because what can we do nowadays when we're still in COVID to, for fun? And honestly, it's so boring. The most fun thing I do right now is watch TV. But I'm always learning about spirituality. Like I've been looking into, I, again, I'm afraid to say this out loud, but I've been looking at witchcraft, like from a historical ancestral point, like I'm not trying to cast spells on anybody and ruin anybody's life. But really one of the, the things that I've learned from doing work about my whiteness is learning what the religious history of my ancestors was. And I'm Irish and German, and there's a lot of paganism in that history. So I've been researching that. And of course, that's such a like a workaholic thing to do is like research <laughs> on your off time. But spirituality is a huge passion of mine in, in so many different forms. And so it does feel like fun for me. So how do we shake out of the perfectionism trance? Sarah believes a part of this is mindfulness, self-compassion, and common humanity, something she picked up from Christian Neff's research. She talks about there being three components to self-compassion. Um, she lists the first as self-kindness, but I actually list mindfulness first because I think if we don't have mindfulness and we're not aware of what's happening, then we're not able to practice kindness. So mindfulness being that we are aware of emotions that we might be experiencing if we're in a moment of suffering, if we're in a moment of struggle. And then self-kindness being the way that we talk to ourselves. Are we talking to ourselves like someone we love or are we talking to ourselves like an asshole? And then the last piece is common humanity. So when I'm in a moment of struggle, do I think that I'm the most terminally unique person and I'm just going to die because I'm so unique and no one will ever understand me? Or do I recognize that my suffering is the suffering that most humans share? And it is an antidote to perfectionism because I think that common humanity piece is what's so important. Being able to zoom out and recognize this is not just happening to me. I am not just alone in this. This is part of the human condition and normalizing. And I think making things more human is always supportive of freeing ourselves from shame and perfectionism. When we are able to take a step back and see our struggles as common, not exceptional, different, sure, but relatable to other humans, then we also have the opportunity to not be so hard on ourselves. Also, sometimes this process of shaming ourselves comes down to trauma. This is when something difficult or harmful happens to us, and the response that we learn is to cope with that difficult thing through shame. One way that people can identify these shaming coping skills 
is through NARM. Lately, I've been utilizing NARM, the neuroaffective relational model. So I got trained in NARM. I've spent like the past two and a half years doing some pretty intense training with them. And it's all about developmental trauma, which for the professionals who are listening and, and anybody else who might be listening, it's essentially trauma that happens early in life when the, there's some sort of failure in the environment. So sometimes that's parents making mistakes. Sometimes that's there was a natural disaster, whatever. But there's essentially failure in the family where the parents don't often respond in the way that the child needed to at that time. So again, not putting fault on parents necessarily, but there's something that there was a misattunement. And Narm talks about shame not being an emotion, but being a process that we learn in that, in, in the time when we were experiencing the early trauma, and then we learn to shame ourselves over and over again. And so what I've learned through NARM, because I'd been doing Brene Brown's work for a long time, I've been practicing self-compassion, but there was still this really deep core wound of shame that I wasn't able to get at. There was no amount of practicing self-compassion or getting empathy from other people that was gonna touch that. It's really like NARM helps us be aware of the binds that are within us. And oftentimes we will shame ourselves because we're experiencing these binds, right? Like one of the things I've been working on in therapy is I want to be a person who's out in front and saying important things. And I am a natural leader and I'm a natural performer. So that makes a lot of sense. And yet one of the developmental wounds for me was my mom would say, you're talented, you're smart, you're this, you're that, but don't be too talented, don't be too smart. So it was this very fine line. And I've experienced this internal bind and this fear of really being my whole self, really putting everything out there. And so having awareness of that bind and recognizing how easily it was for me to shame myself when I would actually step out, compassion just arises when you are able to sit with the bind um, so that's not, <laughs> those aren't steps, but that's the work that I've been doing with NARM and it gets very deep. It gets very nuanced and it's sometimes even beyond language. Like sometimes I can just tell that my brain is rewiring itself and I don't know exactly why, and I don't know exactly how, but at the end of the day, it's really changed me profoundly. Anytime we start talking about shame, you know that addiction or substance use is somewhere close by. And in terms of perfectionism, it also has a role in substance use too. I think at, at the root of perfectionism is shame. And what I found in working in the substance use disorder world is that there are usually two types of clients. And I know it can be really dangerous to put people into categories, but I think this one's pretty safe. Two types of people that have shown up, at least in, in my experience, one who is able to name their shame. They, they know that they've been through trauma and they say, I was using drugs and alcohol to medicate my pain. And I want to work on this shame. I want to work on all of these things that are contributing to me being an addict. And then there's the other type of person who will come in and they'll say, I was just using for fun. And I had a perfect childhood. Everything was fine. And that type of person also, I'm cautious when I say this, but in my experience tends to be more on the narcissistic side of the spectrum. And 
with those clients, we not only need to work on their shame, but first we need to help them find it. And I, I believe, at least the way that I've been taught, is that unless you're a psychopath, everybody experiences shame because that's a, a normal human emotion. And so if I have a, a client in front of me saying, I don't have shame, I didn't experience any trauma, then it, it takes, I think it takes a lot more work to move past the denial that really gets in the way. Because if I have a person in front of me not endorsing shame, that tells me that their shame is actually way worse, <laughs> even potentially than somebody who is coming in endorsing their shame. So shame, as long as it's not a constant downpour that never stops, can be a good thing. It shows us that we need change. And no matter what, we first need to learn to be aware of our shame so that we can make a judgment call on it in the first place. How do you shame yourself throughout the day when comparing yourself to some unfair ideal of perfectionism? If you're struggling with addiction and you don't feel shame, why? Is your substance use connected to pushing something down that you don't want to feel? You deserve to be kind to yourself, to laugh at yourself when you trip on the street or lock yourself out of your house. You are definitely not the first one to do this kind of stuff. And you can also bet that there are a ton of folks listening who have felt like an imposter too, that they aren't good enough. And then when they sum themselves up, that something is missing, but you, you are beautiful just the way you are. And in case no one has told you today, I'm glad that you are on this planet sharing this moment with me. If you find Sarah's honesty and candor super refreshing like I do, then there are a ton of ways to connect with her. I think my podcast conversations with the wounded healer is a great place because I'm very clearly I'm very authentic and honest and vulnerable and will share a lot about myself and my process. And, and I speak with other people in a variety of healing type perfections about that journey of, of healing self while caring for others. And you can find that on all of the podcast apps, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. My website is headhearttherapy.com and Instagram is probably my favorite place to connect with folks. And that's headhearttherapy. And you can also find us at headhearttherapy on Facebook. Hey y'all, this perfectionism thing, it's real. But as we learned today, it's way more common than you think. And most of all, it's treatable. All my love, and we'll see you on the next episode.